Sarah's Bookshelves Live. I'm Sarah of Sarah's Bookshelves. Each week, I talk with a bookish guest about two old books they love, two new books they love, one book they do not love, and one new release they're excited about. We're going to get real and sometimes a bit snarky about all things books. If you like the show, I'd love it if you follow the show in your podcast player, spread the word to your reader friends, post about it on your social media, or support the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash Sarah's Bookshelves. Supporting the show on Patreon gets you access to bonus podcast episodes and lots of other goodies. There's also a link in the show notes and in my Instagram bio. Let's get rolling. Welcome to our 2023 year-end superlatives episode, the first episode in our two-part year-end series. Part two of the series is going to be coming next week, and it is the 2023 Genre Awards, including awards voted on by our Patreon community, as well as Susie and I's picks for each of the genre categories. And today, I've got Susie from Novel Visits with me. Welcome, Susie. Thanks, Sarah. I am so excited to do this episode. It's going to be lots of fun. Our year-end episodes are always so fun, and they get tons of downloads, which we love. Right. And they really get us thinking about what was so great about the year. Absolutely. And so just so y'all have this perspective, we are recording this probably weeks before we finalize our best books of the year list. So this is also helping me kind of parse through my potentials for that list and firming up my feelings about what's going to be on it and what's not going to be on it. Oh, definitely. But before we get into our superlatives, I do have two quick housekeeping announcements, both of which are really great reasons to join our Patreon community if you've been considering it. And you could even make it a holiday gift to yourself. I actually do really wish that Patreon would technologically add the ability to gift somebody a subscription to Patreon. They have not done that. Oh, yeah. That is something I desperately want from Patreon. All right. So the first announcement is that earlier this fall, we launched a new bi-monthly bonus podcast series for all patrons called Unscripted. We learned in this year's Patreon survey that y'all love the looser, less scripted conversations we've been having as part of other bonus episodes, like in our superlatives episodes and our spoiler discussions. And Catherine, Susie, and I all love having these looser conversations. They're a nice counterbalance to the much more highly structured big show. And I'm really loving having this very different thing alongside the structured big show. So that's what we're going to be doing in Unscripted. It's just what the name makes it sound like it is. Some combination of Catherine, Susie, and I, and sometimes all three of us, We'll get on the mic and riff about a general bookish topic in a pretty unplanned way. Topics can be anything. Something interesting going on in the book world, our own reading lives, behind the scenes of the podcast, or topics that patrons submit. Our first episode aired in October, but it is still available if you become a patron now, and it covered author blurbs. It was inspired by an excellent article in Esquire called Publishing's Broken Blurb System. And if you pay attention to author blurbs when choosing a book to read, you need to listen to this episode. And I also have linked to the article in the show notes. Our second episode just aired and was all about how we read, including book sources, how we organize our TBR list, how we handle reading for the podcast, how we handle ARCs, and other tangents that we went on. And this topic was requested by our patrons. And our third episode will be coming in February, and we're going to be covering our rating systems. That's a big one. (laughs) That is a big one. Yes. This is going to be a therapy session for me. (laughs) Yes. Susie has been back and forth about her rating system, and we are going to hash all this out on the mic. All right. So that's the first announcement. New podcast series for our patrons called Unscripted. Second announcement is more of a reminder about the 2024 reading tracker. I talked about this in the Fall Circle Back episode. It had not launched yet at that point. Now it is available to our $7 a month Superstars patrons. So if you become a Superstars patron, you can get immediate access to the 2024 reading tracker now. And again, there's a link in my show notes and in my Instagram bio to become a patron. All right, superlatives. So we each have 15 superlatives categories to cover today. 
And we will be covering five extra superlatives categories, all dealing with behind the scenes of the podcast in the bonus episode for patrons that will go along with this show. We're handling our superlatives a little bit differently this year. Susie and I used to answer the same categories, which got a little bit sticky with overlap among number one, our book choices, and number two, overlapping with books we were going to talk about in part two of our year-end podcast series, the Genre Awards episode. So for today, we are not going to be talking about any of the books that are going to be winning our personal genre award categories next week. Susie and I each came up with our own superlatives categories today and didn't share them with each other in advance. So we're going to get to be surprised right along with you and maybe guess a couple of each other's picks in real time. So this is going to be a new experiment for us. And I'm really excited personally, Susie, that I have no idea what you're going to say today. I know, I know. And I have no idea what you're going to say. So I think it's going to be interesting for all of us. Totally. And hopefully the episode will be good. (laughs) Usually I have more of an idea that it will be good before we start talking. (laughs) This is a little unscripted too. Yeah, but I like it. I like going in this direction. I do too. It's a nice change. Yeah. And one final thing, we are not going to be covering any backlist books today because as y'all know, in January every year, Catherine and I do a full episode called The Best Backlist Books We Read in 2023. So we'll be saving all backlist talk for that episode. All right, Susie, what's your first category? Well, I'm going to start out with something good. My first category is the book that I think was most deserving of the hype around it. It's Hello Beautiful by Anne Napolitano. As almost everybody knows, this is a story of four very close sisters who live in Chicago, and as they're nearing adulthood, a troubled young man enters their lives and over the years ends up affecting all of their hearts in different ways. So when this book came out, it was also right at the time that Dear Edward was coming out on Apple TV, which was Napolitano's last book. So there was a lot of hype around her at the time of the publication of this book because of that. Oh, I didn't realize that timing was that way. That's interesting. Yeah, it was just, it was like within the same month that the two happened. But anyway, this was one of my very favorite stories of the year. And I think the hype around it was well-deserved. I agree with this pick. I did not do this category this time around, but if I had done it, I would agree with this pick. But I will say, and y'all now will have already heard this, Susie, you have not heard it yet because we just recorded the episode, but it has not yet aired. When I talked with Sarah Landis about various books and how they did compare to publisher expectations, she told me that the publisher totally did not expect this book to take off like it did. Really? Yes. Isn't that interesting? That is interesting. Well, she said that it was once it became an Oprah pick, then you know it's going to take off because Oprah drives sales. Yes. But prior to that, this was sort of not expected to do as well as it has done. Huh. That's interesting. This is like squarely in my wheelhouse of the kind of books I love. So, Oh, me too. (laughs) And it even had that sports angle for me. Okay. What's your first category? My first category is something that I have realized can send a book to a new level for me. And my category is best voice. I tend to call books with a great voice voicey novels. My pick for this category is The Rachel Incident by Caroline O'Donohue. Oh. This is an Irish novel, something else I've been loving over the past year or two. It's about two platonic friends, a woman and a man, who have their own love stories going on separately, but these love stories kind of overlap in a really tangled way. It's a story very much about complicated relationships and very much, too, about the platonic relationship and friendship between the two main characters. The voice in this story is kind of quirky and funny, but in a low-key way. It's very smart. There's just enough Irishisms to make it unique and interesting, but not overwhelming to the point where I don't quite understand the humor because I'm not Irish. The writing itself felt very fresh to me. I can't compare it to the writing I've seen before, which I loved. And it's not super mainstream. If you start this book and don't like the voice, you can be pretty confident it's not for you and don't continue. This was a five-star read for me and is definitely one of my favorite books of the year. 
So I'm going to piggyback on that for just a second. And this is also one of my favorite books of the year also. And I would agree completely with you that the voice in it is outstanding. This book also stood out for me because I too have kind of been drawn to the Irish books, which is interesting because for years I sort of had a self-imposed ban on Irish books. Oh, why? That's interesting. Because I had read a series of them that were just so depressing. I was like, for a while, if I saw something was set in Ireland, I was like, nope, I'm not going to read it. But in the last couple of years, that has changed. And I've grown to really love the books set in Ireland. So I loved this one as well. In addition to the voice, I thought this was a really great coming of age story. If I had a coming of age category, this would be probably my number one choice for that. I have another category that just occurred to me that I could have given this, and that is the word of mouth award. Because I don't feel like this book got much buzz from the publisher before it came out, but it really has taken off, at least in our little bubble of reading world. I feel like within our Patreon community, a lot of people are reading and loving this. I'm seeing it on Instagram, and it's not something that I felt like there was a lot of hype about going into it. Yeah, I wouldn't say there was a lot of hype. I don't know if I'd call it underhyped either, though. At this point, I would not call it an underrated gym. Yeah. Because now people have started to discover it. But when it first came out, yeah. So what is your next category, Susie? I have a voice one, too. So let me do that first. Okay. So my best voice book was I Have Some Questions for You by Rebecca Mackay. Interesting. Really? (laughs) Yeah, keep going. I think most readers have an idea of what this book is about because it was pretty popular. It's about a podcaster named Bodie Kane who returns to the private boarding school where she went to high school to teach a winter quarter course. And while she's there, she revisits a murder that occurred when she was going to school there, a murder of a fellow student. So the reason I liked the voice in this is because it was a big story with a lot going on, and it all comes to you through the lens of the main character, Bodhi. And I thought the writing around her was really smart. It brought her to life. She wore a lot of different hats in the story. She was the teacher, the podcaster who was kind of investigating. She was a student in the backstory. And I thought this was a character that you truly knew by the end of the story and trusted what she was saying. So this is interesting. I loved this book too. Five stars for me. The voice in this story did not stand out to me one way or the other. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, I loved the book. I just, I don't have a... It wasn't voicey for you. Yeah. I didn't have a strong memory of the voice. Well, there you go. That was I Have Some Questions for You by Rebecca Mackay. All right, my next category is this is what all the hype is about book. <laughs> so I have, I have a category like this too. <laughs> I should probably say plural because I do have two picks for this one. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. And I felt the same way about both of them. These are not books that I hated or anything. And actually, I liked them fine. However, they're books that I knew going into them were hugely hyped, both by the publisher and by other readers. Oh, God, I'm trying to think what these could possibly be. I know. This is interesting, right? Are they ones I've read? I actually don't know. Okay, let's hear it. But I basically just came out of these books being like, huh, these were good, but I don't really understand this extra level of attention they're getting, like the level of buzz. Yeah, yeah. So number one, The Quiet Tenant by Clemence Michelin. Okay. I did read that one. So did you think it was worth the hype? That was in the summer and I was traveling a lot and stuff. I wasn't really aware that there was a lot of hype around it. Oh, okay. See, I'd heard about this book months before it came out as like the thriller of the year. Uh Uh-huh. I would not give it that title. Okay. Yeah. Well, me neither. (laughs) It's a debut and it's about a serial killer told from the perspectives of three women who are close to him. I didn't have trouble getting through the book. I was interested in what was going to happen. But again, I just kept waiting and waiting and waiting for the big turn or the big thing to be like, oh, this is why everyone's talking about this book. And I just feel like it never happened. And again, expectations. Maybe I would have felt differently if I hadn't gone in with this level of hype. Yeah. And I didn't go in really with much expectations at all. I didn't. I mean, I knew the basic premise of the story and I, I liked it. I thought it was a good book. Yeah. So that was The Quiet Tenant by Clemence Michelin. And my second pick for this category is Pineapple Street by Jenny Jackson. 
again, I liked it. I rated it four stars. But Sarah Landis, when she came on earlier this year, told us that this was like the book publishing was throwing their weight behind this year. And that threw me for a loop. (laughs) That really throws me for a loop, too, because it's, you know, it's a classic rich white people story. Yes. And also, it's a decently entertaining brain candy novel. Yeah. Like you throw it in your beach bag. It didn't stand out as this amazing thing for me. And again, it's like, it's a drama about a wealthy family living in Brooklyn Heights. And here's my direct quote from my review. Solidly entertaining if you want something easy, but not super memorable. (laughs) Well, it's interesting that that was your quote, because what I was going to say about this book is the further I get away from it, the less I like it and the less I remember about it. I agree with the less I remember about it part. I think I still like it the same. But I am confused by the hype. (laughs) That was Pineapple Street by Jenny Jackson. Okay, well, I have a similar category. And this is my book that I think is the least deserving of the hype around it this year. Oh, yeah. Bring it on. Okay. Mine is The Age of Vice by Deepti Kapoor. Oh, yeah. This came out really early in the year. This was one of the, I think it was my very first review of the year. And the plot is so complicated, I couldn't possibly describe it. But very loosely, it's about the rich, spoiled son of an Indian crime boss, and then the people in his inner circle who he uses to do terrible things that he won't do himself. When I read this book, I actually gave it four stars. But when I looked back on it, I couldn't believe I gave it four stars. I was shocked. (laughs) There was so much hype around this book. Susie, we have your re-rating column in the tracker for next year. You can re-rate down too. I'm so happy to have a re-rating column. (laughs) But there was so much hype around this. The publisher was giving really nice gift boxes with the book. It was everywhere. Everyone was talking about it. And I was really excited to read it. But it's a super long book. And I was able to stay fairly engaged, even though that really wasn't my type of story, for about the first 70% of the book. But then it went completely off the rails, just really creating more and more situations where there were questions that weren't answered. And by the time you get to the end of the book, you're like, I don't even know what just happened in the last 25% of the story. You know why there might have been a lot of unanswered questions? Oh, I know why now. I didn't know why until I had finished it and then started doing a little research. And this is the first in a three-book series. So it was clearly set up for the second book. Yeah. So I DNF'd this book. I think I made it like 10 or 15%. I lost track of all the characters that quickly. Yeah. It was hard to read. You really had to concentrate. And I think there were quite a few people who DNF'd it, but others who loved it. I know that it did not sell very well. So my question is... When that happens, when the publisher makes a big bet on something and it's a series and then the first one doesn't do well, can they pull out of the rest of the series or do they have to keep going? I don't know. I don't know. It probably depends on how the contract's written. I should have asked Sarah Landis that. (laughs) Anyway, I feel confident for me that the Age of Vice did not live up to the hype. I would agree with that. Yeah. So my next category is what I am calling the third times the charm book. I have never had an occasion to do a category like this before. So I thought I had to do it this year. I did not like the first two books that I read by this author, but I loved the third one, hence the name of the category. Okay, I'm surprised if you didn't like two, you would even give the third one a chance. So true. The reason I did was because Catherine told me that I would like it. And she also felt the same way about this author's first two books and understood my concerns with them. It is All the Sinners Bleed by S.A. Cosby. Oh. I DNF'd Blacktop Wasteland. I finished Razorblade Tears. I didn't love it because of the total overkill in the number of fight scenes in the book. And I think fight scenes are boring. I just think they're boring to read. It's not even the violence that bothers me. But with each successive book, I think S.A. Cosby is leaning more into relationships and characters in his stories. And he did that a bit in Razorblade Tears. That's why I finished it, because there was a part of the story between two dads that I loved. And I just would, like, skim the fight scenes. 
But with All the Sinners Bleed, I think this is why it worked for me. It leaned into that part of the story. It was definitely a tough read in the graphic nature, but it wasn't a high volume of fight scenes. It was more like crimes that you were seeing the crime scene of that was graphic in nature. It's very much a literary mystery kind of police procedural book with a strong sense of the community it takes place in, which is a Southern town with deep racial issues and characters who fan those racial flames. So there's a lot of racial stuff in this book. And I just love the focus on the community and the characters in this story. I hope S.A. Cosby keeps heading in this direction. If he does, he's got a new fan. (laughs) Well, that's good. I haven't read this one. I do have it on a Libby hold. It keeps coming up and I keep delaying it. So maybe by the end of the year, I'll have read it. And I love a literary police procedural. Some of the police procedurals can feel a little cheesy to me. Most of them. But the literary, I know, but the literary ones just completely hit the spot for me. Okay. And that's All the Sinners Plead by S.A. Cosby. Okay. What do you have for us next? I have next for us the darkest book I read this year. All right. And that is Juno Loves Legs by Carl Geary. And Sarah, this is another one of those Irish author books that we talked about earlier. Oh. And that I'm also loving now. This one takes place in the 1980s and is the story of two friends. They're both poor and they're both picked on a lot. And for the sake of survival, they align themselves at 12 years old. And then they sort of learn to deflect and protect each other in ways ranging from subtle to subversive to violent. As you know, and probably most people who listen to this, I read a lot of dark stories. I like dark stories. And this one really stood out as being extra dark this year. So darkest for you is truly, truly, truly dark, given a lot of what you read is dark. Yeah. And the reason this one, I think, stood out as being so dark is because the characters are young when the darkest part of the book hits. Only 12 years old, 12 or 13, something like that. And so there was a part in the book that really shocked me. In fact, it shocked me so much I had to go back and reread a few pages to make sure that I had gotten it right. It was raw and sad, but brilliant. And I would say, you know, maybe not for the more tender readers, but it was a really great story. Juno Loves Legs by Carl Geary. I'm going to piggyback off you. I have a category called Most Twisted. That's similar. It's also by an Irish author. Oh, here we go with the Irish authors. Going back to your comment earlier about how Irish books are so dark for you. (laughs) (laughs) They are dark. I guess we're just proving that right. Mine is Strange Sally Diamond by Liz Nugent. Y'all have heard me talk about this book a lot. We have heard from Liz on the podcast. And Liz is known for writing very psychologically dark books. Unraveling Oliver was very, very dark. That was one of her previous books. The trauma that Sally experiences in this book is off the charts, but there is hope as well. And though Sally is incredibly damaged, Liz Nugent portrays her with empathy and nuance. And I would like to dive further into Liz's backlist. I have only read Unraveling Oliver, and she has other books that I'm excited to try. And that's Strange Sally Diamond by Liz Nugent. Yeah, that was a good one. I liked that too. All right, Susie, where are we going next? Hmm. Let's go with something really simple for my next one. I'm going to do best and worst covers of the year. I love it. I do feel like this was a really great year for covers. I tend to like covers that are like bright and kind of artsy, pretty. I like pretty covers or something really unique in it. So this choosing the best cover was not easy for me. There were a lot in the running, things like Talking at Night, Shark Heart, Mame, The Rachel Incident. All of those were covers that really stood out. But my favorite was Hello Beautiful, again, by Anne Napolitano. It was just the woman on the cover was striking in the way she was portrayed, sort of like a watercolor painting. So I really loved that one for the cover. I could not picture the Hello Beautiful cover when you said it. I had to look it up. Really? 
<laughs> it just wasn't that memorable for me. I, I, I remember the color scheme, like the blue and the greenish, but I could not remember actually what was on the cover. It was just kind of haunting with her staring right out at you on the cover. Yeah, it is now that I'm looking at it. All right, what's next? My worst cover was an easy pick. It's a book called Western Lane by Chetna Maru. That's a really serious story about a family of three teenage girls and their father who are trying to deal with the grief of losing the mother and the family. The girls are all teenagers, and really the dad has no idea what to do with them. So he introduces them to squash, a game that he loved when he was growing up. So the cover of this very small, slim book is plain, sort of a dull beige color, and it's filled with squash balls here and there. And then there's also three tiny girls in action on it. And it's just boring to look at. If I was browsing in a bookstore, that book would never attract me to pick it up and say, what more is in here? Also, based on what you've said about the book, to me, the cover makes it look like it's this kind of lighter thing than it actually is. It's a serious book. You might like it, though, Sarah, because it's got the whole sports angle in it. And the sports plays a lot in the story. Yeah. And it's a really short book. So if people are looking for something to you know, finish out their goals or something this year, that one would be a good choice. You just have to overlook the cover. Yes. I'm going to piggyback on your best and worst covers with the best and worst titles of 2023. <laughs> Ooh, that's an interesting one. It is. And the reason I wanted to do this category was actually to talk about my worst titles. <laughs> <laughs> because I actually worried I wouldn't be able to find a pick for best title because the trend in titles right now is driving me up the wall. So we'll start with the worst. Okay. And I could have picked a number of titles for this, but the very, very worst, in my opinion, is All That Is Mine I Carry With Me by William Landay. Look, I loved this book. It's one of my favorites of the year. I had William Landay on the podcast and he was wonderful. But there are so many small little words in this title. I cannot remember it. I couldn't remember it when I was talking to him. I would reverse the order of some of the words. Why, why, why do publishers do this to people? <laughs> If I can't remember this and it was one of my favorites of the year and I literally talked to the author for two hours, how is a regular reader going to ever remember this? Yeah. So what's the trend? Is the trend that you hate the long wordy titles? The trend that I hate is long wordy titles, but especially with small forgettable words. Yeah. It's sad when you're trying to tell somebody out a book that you literally just finished reading and you can't remember the title. No. And they're not going to remember it when you tell them. That's true. All that is mine, I carry with me. Half of those words are, what are what are the words called? Like, is the, they're not even real words. There's a name for them. I can't remember. There is. And I'm not going to go with what, it, what I think it is. No, we don't need to go into that here. I don't want to get it wrong. <laughs> so, sorry, William Landay. I really loved your book. I did not love your title. And my best title, I did manage to come up with one, is Bright Young Women, by Jessica Knoll. And it's not so much the title itself. It's more like how she got to the title that I loved so much. It's very clever and perfectly encapsulates what she was trying to do with the book overall. I also love the title to tell you something about the book. I need it to make sense within the context of the book. For Bright Young Women, this is a fictional story about the real-life serial killer Ted Bundy and his Florida State University sorority house murders. So in the trial, the judge calls Bundy a bright young man. That's right. So Jessica Knoll is trying to debunk this misconception in her book of Ted Bundy as being like this golden boy, very smart killer. And she's trying to center the victims. So what does she do? She takes the phrase bright young man and applies it to the women of the Florida State sorority because they were known as the smartest sorority on campus, bright young women which I loved. I loved how she did that. Yeah, I agree. Very clever. Good job, Jessica. That was Bright Young Women by Jessica Knoll. Also loved this book. Yeah, I really liked this book too. All right, Susie, what do you have next for us? All right, I'm going to go negative. I'm going to give now the biggest disappointment of the year. Ooh, all right. And this is one I actually just read, and that is The Future by Naomi Alderman. Oh, you didn't like it. I'm so sorry. I know. This is a dystopian novel about 
the not too distant future where the top power players in the world are more concerned with preparing safe zones for themselves and their families than they are with trying to save the rest of humanity. I absolutely adored Alderman's last book, The Power. It was one of my best books of the year in 2017. It was my number one audiobook that year. With this one, I did a read-listen because I couldn't stay with either one. My expectations were super high, and I had anticipated this book all year. But in the end, I felt like it was kind of self-indulgent. I felt like that Alderman had a message that she wanted to get out there, and she used this story to do it. I hate that when that happens. That is one of my biggest pet peeves in books. And I don't like that either, but it's not that I disagreed with the message that she wanted to get out there. I do agree with most of what kind of what I feel like she was trying to say, but it just felt like she was, quote, schooling the readers. Yeah. And it felt heavy handed. And there were some wacko parts in the story, too. So I finished the book, but unfortunately, it was one that I just didn't care for. I feel like when authors do that, their book ends up feeling clunky to read. Well, and honestly, I feel like there's a lot of authors right now who are taking on social media. And that was part of what she was taking on in this. But there was some of that in Wellness. There's some of that in Day by Michael Cunningham that just came out. There was some of that in Yellowface. So it, it seems to be a thing these days with authors. I got pretty far into the future and I ended up DNFing it. There was just some weird sort of philosophical religious tangents that kept getting more and more of them as the farther you went. That's what I meant by the wacko parts. (laughs) Yeah. I was like, I I don't want, I don't want this. (laughs) Well, in those parts, I just skimmed after a while because they really weren't adding anything to the story. That's what I mean by heavy handed. It's just like, I felt like she was beating me over the head with her concerns about the future. So anyway, that is The Future by Naomi Alderman. All right. My next category, I messed up. I was should have piggybacked off you earlier and forgot that I had this book coming. That's <laughs> no, okay. So I ha- think you'll probably be able to guess this one now that I just gave you a hint. Best genre crossover. And what I mean by genre crossover is I mean a literary author crossing into writing a genre book. And by genre book, I mean like a mystery or a thriller, a romance, sci-fi, something like that. Well, Rebecca Mackay? Yes, This is Rebecca Mackay with I Have Some Questions for You. Her previous novel, The Great Believers, was a very serious story about the AIDS epidemic. And I love that she took a left turn with I Have Some Questions for You and elevated not only the crime fiction genre, but also campus novels into a pretty literary space. We actually did hear from Rebecca on the podcast earlier this year. And I asked her about crossing over into genre writing. And she said... All of her books are different, and that's kind of the mark of a literary writer. You're not getting the same thing from that writer each time they write a book. They sort of jump all over the place with the types of books they write, and that makes sense. This was five stars, and it's one of my favorite books of the year. I Have Some Questions for You by Rebecca Mackay. That's a favorite of mine as well. Yeah. Susie, what's next? The next is my biggest underrated gem. And this was a tough one because there's always a lot of underrated gems, I feel like. And so picking the biggest is difficult. I'm going to go with Pete and Alice in Maine by Caitlin Shetterly. And I know you just read this one recently. I did. It has been the sole bright spot in my month of November so far. Oh, that's so good. (laughs) It's the story about a troubled marriage that's reaching its breaking point just as COVID lockdowns are ramping up. And so the New York City couple decide to ride it out with their two daughters at their main cabin. And then their problems continue. I don't think this debut got nearly enough publicity from Harper. And I also think that many people don't want to read pandemic novels. And so then they hear pandemic and that's as far as they get in their consideration of the book. I would classify myself as a person that does not want to read a pandemic novel, but I could handle this. Yeah, because it really wasn't about the pandemic. No, it's about their marriage. Yeah, exactly. The pandemic was the setting for a book about a marriage. It put them in a situation to have to sort of face some issues that maybe they had been able to skate by pre-pandemic, but it was not about the pandemic. 
Right. And it was just that kind of sort of like the locked room thing. There was really no escape because of the situation of the pandemic. And that made it really interesting. This is one of those books that I honestly have thought about it ever since I finished it. I originally gave it 4.5 stars and I, you know that I'll keep it 4.5 stars, but it was just a really great book. And again, this is a shorter book. So if people are looking for ones to complete their reading goals this year, I think it's only like 200 and 40, 250 pages long. Also, it is very character driven, but I flew through it in like a day and a half. Yeah, it's fast. So that's Pete and Allison Maine has both of our endorsements. Absolutely. And the author's name is Caitlin Shetterly. All right. My next category is best sophomore novel. And this is also one of my favorite books of the year. Also five stars. Lots of five star books today, y'all. It's I Could Live Here Forever by Hannah Halperin. And this is coming from what is probably my number one micro genre right now, intense love stories that are definitely not romances. This is, like Pete and Allison Maine, a character-driven story that was so emotionally intense for me that I read it like a page turner. And I would say this is more emotionally intense than Pete and Allison Maine is. Oh, definitely. I would say that too. I could not put it down, but I love these character-driven stories that have me reading them like it's a page-turning thriller. It is a sad, emotional book, but one that will pull you in and not let go. And it's it's just like the story of this couple. And I would recommend you not read the publisher's blurb because it talks about sort of the main issue that's going on. And I really enjoyed kind of trying to discover what that was in the book. And that's I Could Live Here Forever by Hannah Halperin. Did you ever read this? Yeah, I read this. I liked it. Yeah, I liked it a lot. Great. I was trying to think what my favorite sophomore novel is because we talked about that. Yeah. On the debuts episode. I think mine would have maybe been The Whispers by Ashley Audrain. I really liked that book. I know not everybody did, but I thought it was great. I need to go back and try that again. I read like the first 10 pages and it was just not the right book at the right time for me. But now that I've heard some people talk about it, I think I need to try that one again. Yeah. You just need to not expect the push, but the ending is striking. All right. What's your next one? Okay. My next one, I think I will do my biggest surprise of the year. All right. And that was The Road to Dalton by Shannon Bowring. This is a slim little book again. It takes place over a single year in a small main town. It wasn't even on my radar. The publisher contacted me and sent it to me. It's the story of the residents of this small town and how in a small community, everyone's connected to each other in one way or another. And it sort of just follows the people in the town for a year. What was surprising about this story and why I'm giving it that title is I didn't realize it was almost connected short stories, maybe heavily connected short stories, I guess we could say. But each chapter focused on a different person in the town while still carrying a thread of a story. And that structure of writing the book was surprising to me. And it was surprising that it worked for me because I don't normally go for those kind of books, but I really loved this one and loved getting to know the individuals and the town at the same time. So that book was The Road to Dalton by Shannon Bowring. You didn't read this one, right, Sarah? I have not read this one, no. I think you might like it. All right. I have a most surprising category as well. It is How to Stay Married by Harrison Scott Key. And this is not a book I didn't necessarily think I would like. I was just surprised by the direction the story took. It's a memoir. And I thought I was going to get Key's story of his marriage hitting the skids when his wife has an affair with a neighbor and family friend. And we did get that story. On the surface, things seem like they should have been very cut and dried. But they're absolutely not. There are a ton of complications with this situation, and I was really pleasantly surprised by the direction the story took beyond this is the demise of this marriage because of the infidelity. And I can't tell you the direction that it took because that'll be a spoiler. But suffice it to say, it's not what you expect from a story like this. I also loved the surprising humor in this book. This is obviously a heartbreaking story that affects a family in this marriage, But it's overlaid with very dry, sometimes morbid humor, and I loved that. It was actually nominated for a Goodreads Choice Award in the humor category, which is, I think, probably a rarity for a book about a memoir about the demise of a marriage. 
How much would you say religion played a part in this story? Because I've heard that comment or read that comment on some reviews. Yeah, there is some religion in there. I'm not super religious and the level of religion in the book did not bother me. Okay. That's what I can say about that. That's good to know. That's How to Stay Married by Harrison Scott Key. All right, Susie, where are you going next? Well, I mean, I think I'm going to stay with the surprising and do my most surprising DNF. Oh, love that. Okay. My most surprising DNF is Chain Gang All-Stars by Nana Kwame Ajabrenya. This should have been my kind of story. It's dark. It takes place in the not-too-distant future, which I like both of those things. This one happens to be about a group of elite prison athletes that are engaged in battles to the death, both for entertainment of the American public and for a chance at their own freedom. So this was a pretty highly anticipated book for me. I was eager to get into it. I tried three different times to read it. I got as far as 40%, but I just couldn't keep going with it. I'm not totally sure why it didn't work for me. But I think the fighting to the death element and the way the prisoners were treated as like little more than cheap entertainment may have been just too dark for me, which that seems like a weird thing for me to say. I've heard it was so dark and tough to read. And I think the fact that you felt like it was too dark for you is just telling about the level of darkness in this book. But, you know, like critics loved it. It's one of the four finalists for the National Book Award for Fiction, which comes out today, the day we're recording. So it'll be interesting to see if it actually wins. It was also long and it felt really wordy to me. And so that's a strike against a book that's tough to get through when there's long, wordy passages that don't seem totally necessary for the story. So in the end, I gave up at 40% and had to, I had to surrender to the fact that I couldn't read it. Fair. So that was Chain Gang All-Stars by Nana Kwame Ajabrenya. Okay. My next category is the book I flew through. This is no question the winner of this category. It is Drowning by TJ Newman. It is the fastest paced novel, certainly that I've read all year. I had to stop reading it at night right before I would go to bed. So I would read it before I was going to bed. But the last like 10 minutes before I fell asleep, I had to switch to my reset book, which is longer, denser nonfiction, because I literally couldn't get my heart rate down. (laughs) (laughs) Like the adrenaline in this book is a very physical thing. This has never happened to me before. I can read a book and fall asleep at at night constantly. (laughs) Anyway, It is an aviation action thriller involving a passenger jet crashing into the ocean and things go terribly wrong with the research effort. And TJ Newman is a former flight attendant. So she goes behind the scenes about flight procedures in a way that is really interesting to a civilian. And this is her sophomore novel. Her first one was Falling. I also really liked that one. So yeah, I love the sort of aviation action thriller style of books she seems to be writing. And it's a nice recovery book that's not a romance or like a domestic popcorn thriller. And that's Drowning by TJ Newman. What do you have next? Well, I'm going to go with one that I also flew through, but that's not the category. The category is the most creative book that I read this year. Oh, interesting. And for this one, I'm going with One Woman Show by Christine Coulson. This is a story of one wealthy woman's life told entirely by the labels on art pieces seen in museums. I just thought the premise of this book, to try to tell the story of a person's life simply through the little labels that are on in museums, seemed like such a big task to undertake. But the author did such a great job. You knew what the woman's life was like. I flew through it super fast because... It's not a long book to begin with, and then there's not a lot of information on each page. I think I read this entire book in two, maybe three hours, and I grew more and more amazed with the structure and how creative it was and how well done it was. This was a five-star read for me. I'm just so impressed with how much Colson was able to do with so little. And Catherine talked about this book in the Circle Back episode a little bit ago, and she loved this as well. It was her favorite book of fall. 
Oh, okay. Yeah. I wouldn't, I don't know if it was my favorite book of all, but it was definitely, it definitely stands out as something. I'll never forget it because it was so original. All right. I'm going to piggyback off you a little bit, not in my category title, but in the book that is going to win this category. Okay. So my category title is the book I thought I'd hate, but I actually loved. I think I know what it is. Yes. Why don't you just tell us what you think it is? Shark Heart. Yes, that's right. (laughs) And the reason I'm piggybacking off of your most creative category is this book is also highly creative. Yes. Although I didn't call it that for the category. Shark Heart by Emily Habeck. This is a debut novel and the premise is completely ridiculous to the point where I knew about this book months before it came out and I gave it a hard pass. It's ridiculous when you hear about it, but when you read it. Yes, but not when you read it. It does not feel, and that's why I could love it because I didn't feel weird reading it. (laughs) She just did a great job making it that way. Yeah. But I only tried it because two very trusted recommendation sources told me I would love it. And it's about a newly married couple and the husband begins slowly turning into a great white shark. Which sounds insane. Yes, which sounds totally insane. It's kind of sad but also incredibly touching and makes you have faith in love and marriage. And ultimately, I was shocked that I was able to like a book with a premise that was this outlandish on the surface. Kudos to Emily Habeck for writing this premise in a way that felt normal and palatable. And for coming up with an idea like that. Yeah, good God, for real. (laughs) That's Shark Heart by Emily Habeck. Where are you going next, Susie? I am going to go with my favorite character in a book this year. All right. You might be surprised at this one. I don't think you could pick it. I'm not sure if you read this book. The character is Mary Pat in Small Mercies by Dennis Lehane. Did you read that one? I did not read this book. Okay. It's a tough story taking place in Boston in the lead up to the forced busing there of students in 1974. The story itself is raw and gritty and uses language that makes people feel uncomfortable. I think it was very real towards the attitudes and the actions of the time. But Mary Pat, who's one of the main characters in the book, was a true warrior woman who wasn't going to let anything stop her from finding her daughter who has gone missing. She's perfect for my micro genre of hell no women. So for that, I liked her. I always like a fierce woman character. And she was definitely that. Her determination to find her daughter at all costs. And then also, she had some amazing growth through the book. And I loved that about her too. So she's the character that really stands out for me this year. And that was Small Mercies by Dennis Lehane. All right. I am going to go to the book I loved that other people did not love. Mm, I didn't do these this year. It is Late Bloomers by Deepa Veradarajan. You didn't like this, right? I did not like this book. You're, yeah, you're, you're definitely right. You and Catherine both highly did not like it. <laughs> <laughs> this was a shocker for me because when I read it, I loved it. And I had no inclination that this was going to be divisive in any way. (laughs) It's a debut family drama that's told in a very warm, funny voice. It's about an Indian couple living in Texas who divorced 36 years into an arranged marriage. And they both venture into the dating world to sometimes funny and sometimes really disastrous results. It's a story about second acts and pushing out of your comfort zone, even when it's scary. And I really loved the mix of humor, sentimentality, nostalgia, and warm-heartedness that was all put together in this book. I know you thought the plot was outrageous, right? I did, yes. There were some parts of the plot that you just couldn't get your head around. And I think that Catherine felt the same way. Yeah. That's Late Bloomers by Deepa Veradarajan. All right, what do you have next for us? Okay, well, I guess I have a similar category because I have a divisive book I loved. That one for me is Rootless by Crystal Zara Apaya. It's a debut, and it follows a couple through the heady days of their youth in London, falling in love, their marriage, parenthood, but it opens as the wife in the story has left her husband and child and fled back to Ghana, where she's originally from. And the question is why? 
I wouldn't say this book was really widely read, though it was a book of the month choice. But the reviews I saw were very mixed. Some people were really critical of the main character, F.A., and others thoroughly disliked the ending, and some found it slow. But I loved everything about this book. It was an easy five-star read for me and one that I found super emotional and touched me in a lot of different ways. I will epitomize your category for this. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't love this. It was fine. I just had higher expectations. Right. But this was not one of my favorites. I kept looking for something that, oh, it's going to take this big left turn. And then I felt like it never did. Yeah. Okay. That's Rootless by Crystal Zara Apaya. All right. I'm going to go positive. Good. Best pairing. My pairing is two sports memoirs about the same sport that do not feel like carbon copies of each other and are actually very complementary to each other. And I don't know that I've ever come across this before. It's Good for a Girl by Lauren Fleshman and The Longest Raced by Kara Goucher. And the sport is long distance running, something I kind of used to do as a hobby a bit, but not like they did, but don't do any more at all. Lauren Fleshman takes a macro perspective of the toxicity of elite long distance running and for women in particular, while Kara Goucher dives deep into one famous example of this, which is Alberto Salazar, who has now been banned from coaching. But this has been in the news. Yeah. And the Nike Project, which is the training group that he was in charge of over at Nike. It goes into abuse, performance-enhancing drugs, contract manipulation, gender discrimination, all that stuff. And I listened to both of these on audio, and they were both excellent. They were both five stars. And also, the Goodreads ratings for both these books is 4.5 stars, which is very high for Goodreads. That is high. Yeah. If any part of you is interested, not just in sports, but in gender discrimination, pick up one of these. And that's Good for a Girl by Lauren Fleshman and The Longest Race by Kara Goucher. What do you have, Susie? My next category is best book I read because of FOMO. (laughs) Oh, I love that one. And I honestly read quite a few books because of Fear of Missing Out. When I start seeing a great book all over Instagram, I usually will jump on the bandwagon. So this one for me, the one that stands out the most, is The Postcard by Anne Barrest. This story follows the sort of zigzagging journey of a Russian family to their lives in Paris in the 1930s and 40s, and to how those lives then were affected by World War II, and how more than 70 years later, their descendants are still haunted by that war. So I went through a time where I also had, I I banned some things from myself, Sarah, where I had a kind of a self-imposed ban on World War II books. (laughs) (laughs) You banned some things from yourself. I love that. Well, it's just like I immediately am not interested. And I still feel that way pretty much about World War II books only because I read so many of them in the past that I just, they were just saturated my reading life. And it's hard for me to read a unique World War II book anymore because I feel like I've read it all. Well, and the market is saturated with them too because they do really well with middle-aged to older lady book club groups. Yeah. And I tend to only now want like the really literary ones, which this one was. And it also wasn't, the focus wasn't hugely on World War II. There was a part that covered World War II and you saw some of the awful things that happened during the war, but not as much as you do in a typical World War II book. So that really appealed to me about this book and made me enjoy it. I liked the current timeline of them trying to investigate this postcard that they've actually found that they're trying to figure out what something means on that. So for this one, I'm really glad that I saw all the rave reviews and that I put in an order for it. It was beautifully written and I loved it. This was a 4.5 star book for me. I've heard good things about this one. It's not up my alley, but I actually did buy this for a friend of mine, like a real life friend who loves historical fiction. Oh yeah, perfect. It's a good mix of historical fiction and contemporary. And that's The Postcard by Anne Barrest. All right. I'm going to do my last negative. Okay. Category, because I don't want to end on a negative. My most unpopular opinion. Ooh. You know what this is, right? (sighs) Do you not? (laughs) 
Uh, your most unpopular. It must be something you didn't like that I liked. Is that part right? I actually don't even know if you liked this or not. I can't remember. Oh, 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 I know. Tom Lake. Yes, yes. <laughs> so this is my most unpopular opinion, probably not just of the year, but of the entire time I've been doing this podcast. <laughs> Y'all, first of all, I DNF'd Tom Lake by Ann Patchett at 8%. I love Ann Patchett. And this also could have been my biggest disappointment of the year, but I chose to name this category something different when I talked about this book. But I shared my opinion in the Summer Circle Back episode. And oh my God, I got flooded with so many DMs, comments on Instagram (laughs) that were just, these people were incredulous that I could not have liked this book. Yes, I I remember. It was almost like I was not allowed to have this dissenting opinion. (laughs) People did take it very personally. (laughs) Very personally. I don't, it's so funny because I have disliked so many popular books in the time I've been doing this podcast. That is not a weird thing for me. Now it is weird that this is an author that I typically love. Yeah. But I mean, some of the comments were directed specifically to the fact that I talked about how I wasn't really familiar with the play Our Town. Yeah. And that whole part of the story just sort of went over my head. That's true. I mean, I'm sorry, y'all. I haven't read Our Town. I don't know what to say about that. I don't know. Anyway, there is a small chance I go back to it, though, and there's a very specific reason why, and it is because Roxana, who is a sometimes co-host on the Currently Reading podcast, she did an episode recently of Currently Reading where she talked about her very intriguing take on Tom Lake. And it was that the book really changes if you just push past that beginning part where the main character, who I can't even remember her name right now, but is at the local theater company's auditions for the play. And she's working at the auditions. Well, that's as far as you got? Yeah, I couldn't even get through that. Oh, Sarah, it gets so much better. See, that's what, so that's what I, people have told me. So Roxanne is basically like, just skim through that. And then start reading the book. So I I actually might pick this back up. Yeah. Everyone who DM'd me, y'all might be vindicated. (laughs) We'll see. I gave that book 4.5 stars. I really liked it. Well, I love Ian Patchett. I was shocked when I felt that way about it. Yeah. So there's a chance that I go there. And I will let you all know if I do go there. Okay. That was Tom Lake by Ann Patchett. And we don't need to like reopen the DM vitriol, y'all. Yes. (laughs) I got the message. Thank you. All right. What do you have next? Okay. I'm going to do a negative one. I might have a couple negatives left, but we'll see. I'm going to do my most irritating voice. And let's see if you can guess this one, Sarah. Oh, I love that. I do know your most irritating voice. Is it Mia in Happiness Falls? It's Mia in Happiness Falls. (laughs) Yep. Again, something I was blindsided by. I read Happiness Falls, loved it. Obviously, I really enjoyed Mia's voice. I had no inkling that people would be bothered by Mia's voice, but you're not the only one. I know I'm not. I've heard from a lot of other people. And when I posted my review, I heard from a lot of people. So it's turned out to be a much more divisive book than I thought it was going to be. Yeah. Yeah. It, I, I think that's true. And I mean, you know, I'm not even going to talk about what the book's about. Everybody knows what it's about. Yeah. And we've heard from Angie on the podcast, all that. Right. Exactly. But the voice of Mia, I liked it first for maybe like the first 20%. But then I just grew tired of her. I felt like... I mean, she's telling it from a point in the future that's not very far in the future, but I just felt like the character had her own agenda that she wanted to get across. And that came through in giving so much attention to her father's happiness theory. And then in all the footnotes, which I absolutely just hated the footnotes. I loved the footnotes, just for the record. I feel like her voice hijacked the story and that the story would have been so much better if there was... Was another narrator, like if the brother was also narrating. So we got a break from Mia's voice. Right. So anyway, I just, I found that voice very irritating. So, and and since it was the author's voice, then I felt it was kind of self-indulgent of the author as well. Again, I felt like she had an agenda. Yeah. And she talked about how she has a very vested personal interest in 
the theory of happiness and sort of ha- what makes a person happy based on her own experience immigrating to the U.S. from South Korea. I thought that was super interesting. And I loved all the happiness research and stuff like that. I was just, that's a topic I'm interested in and fascinated by. So I did not feel like it was self-indulgent. Of course, if it had been a topic I, if I, I was not interested in, I probably, probably would have really annoyed me. Yeah. It just felt non-scientific. Oh, interesting. Because I felt like it was very scientific. (laughs) The happiness part of it felt non-scientific. Okay. Not the rest of it. Sure. And that was Happiness Falls by Angie Kim. All right. We're getting to the end, y'all. My next category is Best Meta Book. And this is a micro genre for me that is picking up steam. Books that get meta about their own genres. And by meta... I actually did need to Google this at at a a point in my life a couple years ago. So by meta, I just mean the definition of that is creative works that refer to the conventions of their own genres. So kind of calling themselves out almost. Okay. Do you want me to guess what you picked here? Sure. Do you have a guess? Yellowface? No, but that totally could have won this category too. Okay. What did you pick? Everyone in my family has killed someone by Benjamin Stevenson. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I know you didn't like this. I didn't love it, but, you know, I'm willing to give him another shot. So this is a mashup of a family drama and a murder mystery that is a reboot of the Golden Age locked room mystery, which I could take or leave a Golden Age locked room mystery. So that wasn't necessarily something that like made this book for me. The thing that really separated this mystery from others in my mind was the way that he kind of poked fun at the mystery thriller genre throughout the book. And he did this in a couple ways. He broke the fourth wall and would speak directly to the reader about a particular plot device he was using in the story. Yeah. In the moment. And I like that when they, when the fourth wall is broken. I love it. It reminds me of a reality show when you get the sort of behind the scenes of somebody talking to a producer that you feel like you're not supposed to be privy to. Mm -hmm. So it feels kind of juicy. Yeah. And the second thing he did was he included at the beginning of the book a list of Ronald Knox's 10 commandments of detective fiction, which these are real. And Ronald Knox was a real person. So I, I was not aware of this before I read this book, but now I am. And these were put together in the early 20th century. But the rules outlaw some very specific pet peeves of mine with today's popcorn thrillers, like having a supernatural explanation for something or, oh, the explanation is it was multiple personality disorder or identical twin. (laughs) (laughs) Just things to me that feel like cop-outs. Yeah. Ronald Knox says you're not supposed to be doing any of that in a good mystery. So. Ronald Knox, I love you. I wish you were still around writing mysteries and thrillers. (laughs) And maybe more mystery thriller writers need to be reading his work. (laughs) Correct. That's Everyone in My Family Has Killed Someone by Benjamin Stevenson. Susie, what do you have next? Okay, I'm going to do the best audiobook of the year. And this is the best fiction audiobook. And honestly, this one I'm doing is my number three choice because my number one and two are, are going to come up in the genre awards and I'll mention them there. But this one was... And that's also why I'm not doing this category at all today because what I would have chosen for this category will appear in my genre awards picks next week. Well, and I just feel like I listen to so many fiction audiobooks and there's so many really good ones out there that, you know, it's a close tie choosing between them. So the book I want to talk about today is Wandering Souls by Cecile Penn. This is a book about three Vietnamese siblings who escape Hong Kong as the Vietnam War is ending. They are without the rest of their family because the rest of their family was coming later in a different boat and they don't make it. So 16-year-old On is left to care for her two brothers as they try to make a life for themselves in the U.K., I liked this book, especially on audio, because it had three different narrators and it didn't, wasn't the three siblings. So there were three different narrators that came up at different times. There was a haunting quality to the book. And one of the narrators narrated that kind of haunting quality, which made it really stand out and highlight that part of the book. 
And then one narrator, you weren't sure really exactly who they were, but towards the end, you kind of figured it out. And then on was the other narrator. I think I listened to this whole book in like a day and a half. I was so into it and so into the audio of it. That is Wandering Souls by Cecile Penn. And I didn't mention, but that's also a debut this year. And I really loved it. Yeah. And I think, didn't you talk about it on the debuts episode? I did talk about it on the debuts episode. Yes. All right. I kind of hate that I'm ending on this one, actually, but most heartbreaking. And this is We Were Once a Family by Roxana Asgarian. It's a memoir about a 2018 murder-suicide where a married female couple, Sarah and Jennifer Hart, drove themselves and their six adopted children off a cliff on the Pacific Coast Highway. At the time this happened, so keep in mind, memoir, this is true story. At the time this happened, a lot of the media coverage focused on how these women could do this to their adopted children, what happened to them or was wrong with them that made them commit such a heinous act. Roxana Askarian takes this book from a different angle. She looks at the six children's birth families. And these six children came from two separate birth families. She looks at their circumstances, the flaws in the foster care and the adoption systems that caused the kids to end up with Sarah and Jennifer Hart in the first place. And it was so heartbreaking for me because this situation and this tragedy that happened was so avoidable if the system had been structured to work better. The system worked the way it should have based on how it's structured. All right. Thank you, Susie. Thank you. All right, y'all. The December Superlatives episode for patrons will air at the end of the month. And for this episode, all of our bonus superlative categories relate to behind the scenes of the podcast, including categories like the easiest and hardest types of content to produce this year, And the most surprising piece of feedback that I got, and this is not the feedback I got about Tom Lake, y'all. This is different. This is feedback (laughs) about the podcast. (laughs) If y'all like to get this bonus episode plus others, you can support the show on Patreon. There is a link in my show notes and in my Instagram bio. And next week, Susie and I will be back for part two of our year-end special, The Genre Awards. Talk to you next week. Thanks so much for listening to Sarah's Bookshelves Live. You can find show notes with all the books mentioned in the episode, purchase links, and linked timestamps at sarahsbookshelves.com slash podcast. And that's Sarah with an H. You can also find me online at sarahsbookshelves.com, on Instagram at sarahsbookshelves, or via email at sarahsbookshelves at gmail.com.